Welcome to Rex Factor! This week, the fall of Anne Boleyn. With your hosts, Graham Duke and Ali Hood. Hello. Hello. And welcome to Rex Factor, reviewing all the Queen and Prince consorts of England from Elswith to Prince Philip. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Rex Factor Pod. Like us on Facebook, email rexfactorpodcast at hotmail.com and sign up for bonus content at patreon.com forward slash rexfactor. Now, we have reviewed Anne Boleyn, but we felt her story needed one more episode to look in more detail, specifically at the fall of Anne Boleyn. So after a passionate affair which saw Henry go to such extraordinary length to marry her, Anne began her final year, 1536, in a seemingly insurmountable position. She was finally unquestioned as queen after the death of Henry's first wife, Catherine of Aragon, three months pregnant and very much at the forefront of instituting one of the great changes in English history with the Reformation. However, by May of that year, she had lost everything, found guilty of adultery, her marriage was annulled and she becomes the first queen in English history to be executed. That's exactly the point where I'm up to in Wolf Hall. By that, do you mean the end? <laughs> <laughs> no, she's got the baby, Catherine has died, and it's at this moment Henry says, nah. Well, exactly. That, that's the question, really. What went wrong? Why does yeah. Anne experience this sudden, dramatic and fatal fall from power? It seems so bizarre that after all of that, it all falls apart quite so quickly. So today we're going to investigate various theories around her downfall and explore why one of the most notorious moments in British royal history comes to pass. Guilty! The simplest explanation is the official narrative. Anne was guilty of committing adultery with the musician Mark Smeaton, courtiers Henry Norris, William Brereton and Sir Francis Weston, as well as incest with her own brother, George Boleyn. On top of that, they were also accused of plotting to murder Henry so that she could marry one of her lovers in his place. I mean, that would hold some water if it wasn't such an exhausting list. <laughs> yeah. And I, I use that word advisedly, like, that's a lot of work, isn't it? Because presumably she's keeping that secret from all of the others as well. <laughs> oh. Well, that's the thing. Can it really be plausible? Can she really be guilty? A lot of people assume not, but we will consider the possibility that she could have been guilty because that would be the best explanation for why it all goes wrong so quickly. Yeah. Um, and it has to be said, the bulk of the evidence that damns Anne are those conversations that she has uh, with her courtiers. Genuine conversations for which most of the detail actually comes from and herself. The main two were with Henry Norris and Mark Smeaton across one fatal weekend at the end of April. With Norris, Anne chided him for not having proposed to her cousin and lady-in-waiting Mary Shelton, uh, eventually saying to him, You look for dead man's shoes, for if aught should come to the king but good, you would look to have me. In other words, if Henry VIII died, Norris would want to marry Anne Boleyn. Right. That's dangerous on two levels. Firstly, it implies that Norris is in love with Anne, and given that she is so forward in making reference to it, suggests he may well be open to Norris's advances. If, if there's nothing wrong with being in love with the Queen, though, surely Henry would like that, like she's an object of desire. Well, I guess if she's saying that he is hoping to marry her if something bad happens to the king, that's taking it a slightly higher level. It's not just, oh, is it the Queen so wonderful? We all love her, Your Majesty. It's... 
Isn't the Queen so wonderful? We all love her, Your Majesty. <laughs> it's like, stabby, I don't, stabby. Don't quite like the way you did it the second time. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so it's it's the second version that is the problem. Second version is the problem, and the fact that Anne is so readily referencing it suggests mm. that she is, well, firstly, aware of it, but secondly, perhaps actually not entirely ill-disposed. Mm. Second problem with it is that it encompasses the king's death, which is legally treason. Even thinking it? They're not just thinking it, they are saying it. Oh. Anne Boleyn herself is saying... Imagine if the king died, you could marry me. Okay, so she's the guilty party there, not the other fella for listening to her. Yeah, indeed, and that does sort of make it worse, because the way it's meant to work is that the men are sort of playing court to the queen, and she's going, oh, Mm. you men. But here, Anne's the one that's driving it. Mm. Okay. And Norris immediately recognises the danger of what she says, so he replies, if he should have any such thought, he would his head were off, i.e., I could get killed for that. Yeah, and he knows what's um, he knows what's at stake. Mm, to which Anne retorts that she could undo him if she would. Mm. So she's being kind of inappropriately playful, and it's really crossing a line here. Mm. We've got the idea yeah. of her marrying Norris. We've got the idea of the king dying, and she's not backing down from that. Okay, but Nor, if I were Norris <clears> at this <throat> point, is there a way he can get out of this at that point? Um. <laughs> I guess he could be so outraged that he storms off and, and tells, someone. tells Henry. Yeah, but Henry would then probably kill him for... Well, not necessarily, saying. but he's, he is loyal to Anne, and perhaps perhaps he is a little bit in love with Anne. Um, yeah. Word of the conversation quickly spreads, so they, they don't have the opportunity to control it, um, other than Anne try to get Henry to then go and vouch for her good name, which uh, Norris to vouch for her good name, which kind of makes it worse really if you're rather than just brushing it off he's like oh no 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 she's she's really great i trust me this is a good woman yeah yeah i mean don't don't take me too far when i'm saying that she's a really good woman trust me i mean you and i both know right (laughs) (laughs) i didn't like the second time (laughs) (laughs) um henry and anne are observed having a furious argument about it that evening so it gets to henry and he is furious enough you know he absolutely gets what could be got from that conversation Mm. um it's significant though the fact that they are arguing because that suggests that he hasn't yet turned his back on anne and indeed on the marriage the fact they're arguing about it means that he's it's weirdly good that he's cross about it because he's not turned away from her he's not given up on her maybe even suggests that he's not planning to be rid of her he's not like oh well great well yeah well he's upset because something he cares about is broken or damaged or whatever you know that's yeah so that is weirdly a good thing that suggests that he's not you know there isn't something Mm. happening that he wants to go wrong with a relationship um and in isolation this isn't enough to bring Anne down unfortunately thomas cromwell learns of a second conversation the same weekend between Anne and her musician mark smeaton so Anne encountered him standing sadly by a window in her chamber asked him what was amiss. Um, He didn't deign to answer, telling her it was of no concern, uh, so she reprimanded him for showing a lack of respect. You may not look to have me speak to you as I should do a noble man, because you be an inferior person. Not not terribly nice, but, you know, it's putting him in his place. Uh, To this, Smeaton replied, No, no, madam, a look sufficed me, and thus fare you well. Right. Innocent stuff. 
Well, it's, a, it's rather more ambiguous than the Norris conversation. The issue here is a little bit more of a boundary being transgressed than any outright treason. So, as we were sort of saying with Norris, Anne's court is awash with games of courtly love where the gentlemen faithfully serve and, quote, love the lady of the court, which in this case obviously is Anne as the Queen, uh, and they purport to woo her with words and gifts and assert their love for her, though in reality things always remain platonic. Mm. It's sort of okay. a way of controlling and focusing yeah the, uh, these sorts of feelings the fun of it is playing with the inherent ambiguity of the line between play and real death and life <laughs> well yes in this case yes now smeaton would have been uh, aware of this he would have witnessed this all playing out at Anne's court but because he's just a mere musician and a commoner it's not appropriate for him to engage in the game of courtly love hmm. so when he's talking quite familiarly with her he sort of decides ah, i don't really fancy answering your question or indeed talking about enjoying taking a look at her and that giving him pleasure, the, all the pleasure he needs, that's inappropriate for someone of his social standing. Right. Just he's, talking about looking at someone. Well, I mean, when he, say, when he says, you know, a look sufficed me, he's saying, I, you know, because he wasn't feeling very happy, he's like, no, 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 I've got to have a look at you. That's enough to make me feel better. It's a right. bit more this mild flirtation, but he's not meant to be doing mild flirtation. He's just meant to be playing the lute. Okay. And she tells him off for that, though. She does tell him off for that, <laughs> in her defence. Um, Smeaton, though, is also observed having an unusually high expenditure for someone of his relatively low standing. So put together, we've got slightly transgressive conversation with the, the young musician at court, and also he's got an unusual amount of money that he's throwing around. So when this comes to Cromwell, he thinks, well, it's probably worth giving him a question. Um, and whilst he is being questioned, he confesses to adultery with Anne. Well, yeah, that's damning. And I guess, you know, if we put it with Smeaton, it's not quite in the realms of, you know, Mary Queen of Scots and, you know, Italian poet or music teacher or whatever it was, but still. But it's still a musician, isn't it? And so she should have been very aware. So once Smeaton's confession reaches Henry, uh, who is uh, witnessing a tournament, um, he abruptly leaves with a small escort. And on the way back to court, he personally interrogates uh, Norris, who is part of that escort. And again, the fact that Norris, who has been one of Henry's closest friends for the last 20 years, the fact that he has the opportunity to argue his case to Henry in person is very unusual in terms of the pattern of Henry's reign and when somebody falls from power. Generally... When the fall comes, Henry just doesn't see them anymore. They're gone, they're arrested, and basically it's all over. Mm. Here, Norris has got one-on-one -on -one time with Henry where he can try to convince him, no, you've got it wrong. Mm. So again, that, that does suggest that there is this genuine opportunity there for Norris to demonstrate his innocence, that Henry isn't determined that he'll be guilty. He's like, look, what's going on here, mate? Yeah. Yeah, or, or the other way I interpret that is that maybe he's just trying to save his friend. <laughs> yeah. Say, look, come on, I've got Smeaton on the hook now. Tell me what happened. Well, it's possible, indeed, that Norris's servant recalled that the king promised him his pardon in case he would utter the truth, but Mr Norris would confess no thing to the king. It's a weird way of interrogating, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. I want to find out the truth, and this is the answer. Tell <laughs> me that. It might be, the problem for Norris might be that obviously Henry at this point knows that Smeaton has made a confession. Mm. So perhaps Norris denying anything of himself, perhaps even Norris maybe denies anything untoward ever happening, including the Smeaton thing. Henry's like, well, but this guy has confessed. So if you're still denying it, I mm. know you're lying because I've got a confession in my back pocket. 
Mm. It just all starts to feel like, well, there's got to be something you're not telling me here. The fact that you're just denying everything surely means you're lying about something. And Yeah, and so... Oh, indeed. So Henry is not convinced by what Norris tells him. So Anne and Norris, uh, obviously Smeaton, are soon sent to the Tower of London. Now, once at the Tower, Anne makes another, and again, unprompted revelation that she feared a conversation she'd had a year earlier with one Francis Weston could be even more damning than the one with Norris. So Weston had stated that Norris was in love with her and then said that he himself loved one in her house better than his own wife. And when Anne asked, who is that? Weston replied, it is yourself. Mm. Which, again, in the context of your day-to-day courtly love, isn't really anything to write home about. But in the context of Norris has just been arrested for planning to marry the Queen and kill the King, Mark Smeaton has just confessed to adultery with the Queen... And now we've got this conversation, suddenly it's in a rather more dangerous light. Yeah. <laughs> but she's but she's a bright button. It's very odd. Why would she do that? Well, maybe she's confessing. Or perhaps she is just trying to make sense of everything that's happening to her. And I think perhaps not, not realising that uh, this was on the record, perhaps. Oh, like those generals in the, the country house in Britain. Mm. German generals. But at this point, she's admitting to just conversations. That's all that she's admitting to, but I guess it's all building as a picture, and this is all happening, you know, just in a matter of days. Suddenly, each, every few hours, there's something new. So I guess mm. there's a growing sense that clearly something is amiss. Mm. Yeah. And obviously there is a subsequent investigation, and this uncovers further rumours and gossip about Anne from various other... Uh, ladies at court and more of a sense of her court being licentious and crossing those boundaries of courtly love um and then even you know even at the trial her brother george Boleyn was very adept at answering a lot of the questions put to him but when he was asked whether he at any time spread the story that elizabeth i Anne and henry's daughter was not henry's child he rather evaded that question what an idiot now obviously he doesn't necessarily mean because henry wasn't the father but it's probably a derogatory joke at Henry's expense, but nevertheless, again, these are dangerous words that have been spoken. I can't, I mean, I can't tell you how mindful I would be about everything I said if I were <laughs> Tudor. Well, I guess in everyone's defence, part of the reason that you say that is because of what happens here and afterwards. Yeah. Okay, so these guys are just existing in a renaissance court of courtly love and all that sort of thing that it was when uh, Henry was young. Yeah. Yeah, so it's gone from pretend, chivalry, courtly love, everything's the same as Edward III, and everyone agrees that it's all a facade to, if you play this game, head gets cut off. Well, it's not even the fact that if you play the game that it's wrong, it's more the fact to say that the the way that they're playing the game, and talking to Norris about him being in love with her, wanting to marry him, the king dying, Smeaton confessing to adultery with her, and saying, oh, Francis Weston said he loved me, and also pointed out a year ago that Norris was in love with me. So that's not a one-off conversation that implicates Mm. Norris. We've got another one from his high year ago that nobody's bothered to mention. All these other people start saying, well, I mean, you know, this happened and that happened. You should see what goes on when you're not looking at the Queen's Court. Adds up. Some historians have also been convinced of Anne's guilt. Uh, Kenneth Muir suggested Anne perhaps was trying to secure her position by securing an heir, hoping that other men would succeed where the king had failed. So obviously, as I said, she desperately needs a son and heir to secure her position as queen. Henry's not managing to do it. Perhaps she might think, well, 
I can get somebody else to... <laughs> that will sort me out. So Peter Ackroyd um, thought, you know, it is at least possible that Anne Boleyn was not as innocent as she claimed. And he also points out, you know, the seniority of the men who are being accused here, never mind, obviously, Anne herself is the Queen, and their closeness to Henry meant it would have been madness to implicate such men in a scheme that had no foundation. What was that logic again? It would be madness well, all because... Pe- all these people are so powerful and they're also so close to Henry. You know, Norris has been his friend for 20 years. Obviously, he's married to Anne Boleyn. George Boleyn is actually quite something of a favour of of Henry. So if you're concocting this scheme and you pick some of the most powerful, influential people at court that Henry really likes, if you've got nothing to show in terms of your accusations, you're going to get your head cut off. So that suggests surely there must have been something behind it or else it would have been crazy to have tried to fabricate it. And also, as John Guy has pointed out, um, Henry does genuinely seem to have thought that Anne was guilty. So he said, rarely did he destroy people on the spur of the moment. He would tend to brood first for days or even weeks. In Anne's case, however, a torrent of jealousy, moral abhorrence and vengeful spite drove him uncontrollably forward. Okay, I definitely saw him as an irrational... Head off, head off, you know, like Mm. a... um, uh, Queenie character. I think I think he's had such trouble with the last one <laughs> that he thinks, right, here's an opportunity. Get it over. Not going through that again, yeah. Well, yeah, now, most historians believe, I've given a few examples who thought she was guilty, most, of course, believe she was innocent. Mm. All of the accused protest their innocence, except for Mark Smeaton, who perhaps not coincidentally was also the only one as a commoner who could be tortured. Even 500 years on, we can demonstrate that about three quarters of the alleged incidents of adultery are false because key individuals are known to have been in a different location at the time. What? Yeah. Well, they weren't even there. Yeah, so we know there are lots of the incidents because they've got times and dates and places, but lots of them you can just check where people were on those days and they're not in the right place or they're not where Anne is. So it, we know most of them are demonstrably false even now. Well, that is amazing because you know it undermines that case but also that we know 500 years later where a random person was on the (laughs) 15th of may are we still taking this kind of records with all our digital stuff (laughs) i don't know where i was last may (laughs) and how will anyone in 500 years know you need a thomas cromwell in your life (laughs) i'm gonna say because if this is falling to me i (laughs) i haven't been keeping a track on it i've got to be honest (laughs) But you probably could quite easily Google where the king is on any given day. You're right. I bet there's someone whose job it is to basically write up his diary on vellum. (laughs) And also, you've got to accept that Anne's life as a queen is a very public affair. So even if you accept that she could have had affairs with five different men, it wouldn't have been possible to keep it generally secret without the support of her ladies-in-waiting. But unlike with Mm. Catherine Howard, not one of her ladies is ever arrested. Yeah, people must have known about it, and yet no one else is held to account for that. That's suspicious, isn't it? Mm. Uh, many contemporaries are not convinced uh, of Anne's guilt. The Archbishop of Canterbury, Thomas Cranmer, wrote to Henry after Anne's arrest, expressing his surprise. I am in such a perplexity that my mind is clearly amazed, for I never had better opinion in a woman than I had in her, which maketh me to think that she could not be culpable. And again, I think your highness could not have gone so far except that she had surely been culpable. So, Cram obviously doesn't dare to suggest Henry could be wrong, but he makes clear that he finds it hard to believe. Uh, Eustace Shapwee, the Spanish ambassador, and Anne's implacable uh, enemy, was very dismissive 
uh, of the trials, which he witnessed, um, and he wrote of George Boleyn's trial, no proof of his guilt was produced except that of his having once passed many hours in her company and other little follies, and that people around uh, the court were staking bets that he would be acquitted. Such was the poor case against him. Yeah, it does sound rubbish. Anne herself always asserted her innocence. On the, entering the Tower of London, she fell down on her knees, beseeching God to help her, as she was not guilty of her accusement. While the night before her death, she swore to her innocence on peril of her soul's damnation, both before and after receiving the sacrament, which is highly significant for someone of such evangelical views and in anticipation of imminent death. Uh, at her trial, Charles Risley wrote that she gave wise and discreet answers to all things laid against her, excusing herself with her words so clearly as though she had never been faulty to the same. So are you feeling convinced that she was guilty? I'm feeling convinced that... Henry would have taken any sniff of anything to get rid of her. I think she probably... Uh, I think I'm falling into the trap of saying, oh, there's no smoke without fire. <laughs> I think it, I think it would be impossible. I think she's absolutely guilty of crossing that line that I'm struggling to find, of <laughs> that whole courtliness. Mm. Um, but I just think it's impossible mm. for it to have happened. As you say, without some help or... Or that many people that she's accused of is definitely nonsense. Mm. What we need is some sort of fair trial system, <laughs> which I don't think she's going to get. Mm. Well, if she's not guilty, um, and the conviction is so dubious, uh, that suggests she is less the sinner and more sinned against. Conspiracy. When Anne first came to the Tower of London, she asked uh, Kingston, the lieutenant, if she would die without justice, uh, to which he replied that even the poorest of the king's subjects receive justice. To which Anne just laughed. Yeah, because that justice could be having your head taken off. Yes. Than... <laughs> um, and indeed, many people do believe she is a victim of a conspiracy. She's innocent of the crimes uh, levelled at her and brought down for political reasons by Thomas Cromwell. Mm. Well, he's been he, the king. Want is the king? The king wanted her out and charged Cromwell with doing it, right? Well, but to see Cromwell perhaps once they're out because although they're both religious reformers Cromwell and Anne are never really particularly close Cromwell rises to prominence in the service of Cardinal Wolsey whom Anne destroyed and they never really seem to have fully trusted each other perhaps because of that yeah and indeed despite being the key figure in Henry's government Cromwell is conspicuously lacking in honours or titles even a knighthood at this point eludes him Dermot McCulloch believes Anne was probably responsible for slowing rather than furthering his career is there a noticeable change once she's gone? Well, he gets knighted. He did it for a knighthood, didn't he? And then becomes an earl. <laughs> mm. Earl of Essex, no less. Indeed, indeed, yes. Check me out. Uh, they seem to have found it difficult to work together at various points. In 1535, they have one argument in which Anne declares that she would like to see his head off his shoulders. Gosh. I've had, I've, my arguments have never got that bad. <laughs> I mean, I could imagine Becca saying that back to you. <laughs> <laughs> Very true. She that that is definitely right. I mean, she hasn't said specifically that, but yeah. Mm. By fifteen thirty six, Anne and Cromwell seem to be in direct competition to be the dominant force behind the king. Uh, in religious matters, Anne directed her bishops to publicly brief against Cromwell, 
and his approach to the dissolution of the monasteries, while in foreign affairs she was seen as the major obstacle towards an Anglo-Spanish alliance, uh, with Shapwe telling Cromwell that he had purposely avoided visiting him many a time for fear of arousing his royal mistress's suspicions for the reasons he himself explained to me. Basically, she's the obstacle to an Anglo-Spanish accord. Because Catherine. Although Catherine's dead by this point, which is why it's a bit... There's now a, a route to peace. Yeah, but, yeah, but the route to peace, it, it means going through Anne, and Anne isn't keen. Well, they want to avoid Anne and just go to Henry, but they need to try and avoid Anne knowing about it. Gosh, she really has influence then, doesn't she? She has influence. Let's say, she she's looking to be the primary influence. And indeed, on the 18th of April, which is just four days after Anne's almoner preached against Cromwell to the whole of the Privy Council, Shapwe was not only manoeuvred into having to acknowledge Anne as Queen for the first time, but also Henry makes a surprising and very public outburst against both Shapwe and Cromwell for meddling in his affairs and trying to set up this Anglo-Spanish alliance and indeed trying to tell him uh, to be better towards Mary. That is exactly where I'm up to. Shapway is forced to recognise Anne, and on that very day, Henry berates the pair of them and says, don't tell me who to make alliances with or to treat my daughter better. Mm. Uh, this all very much suggests that Anne is getting the upper hand. Yeah. What year is this? This is April 50, mid-April 1536. She, what, and a month later, she has her head off? Indeed. Literally a month later. She has a wow. So Cromwell, of course, has witnessed and destroy Wolsey and recall that she was in a battle with Wolsey to have mm. control of the great matter, the divorce. Mm. And Anne won that battle and destroys Wolsey. So Cromwell obviously realises that he is in danger of losing his own battle and he will be destroyed unless he can destroy her first. Yes, and he sees um, Wolsey saying to him, she destroyed me, make sure she doesn't destroy you. In in the book. I'm in danger of thinking that Wolf Hall is fact. Not necessarily. Yeah, yeah I realise that now. I'm not sure there was a record of Wolsey's ghost <laughs> appeared to Cromwell. Oh, uh, that's the trouble. It does help me imagine these things, but... Yeah, but, the, but, the, but the, the essence of that is true. Cromwell saw Wolsey be destroyed by Anne when Anne was able to make herself the top influence, the top advisor to Henry. Cromwell's in exactly the same position now, and he knows that if he loses, he falls. He is destroyed. Mm. Hmm. So, Cromwell knows he's got to act, and act pretty quickly, to destroy her before she can destroy him. Hmm. So, on the twenty fourth uh, on the twenty fourth of April, so just six days later after Henry's outburst, uh, a judicial commission is issued um, to sit at Westminster to hear and determine a wide range of offences, which might include treason. And then, on the twenty seventh of April, writs are issued for a new Parliament. Now, given that the previous and very long-running Reformation Parliament had only been dissolved on the 14th of April, the fact that they're suddenly issuing a new Parliament implies that something big is brewing. Yeah, and he's starting to think, right, I need to do something. He moves fast, doesn't he, this Cromwell? Yeah, so basically what Cromwell is doing here, he's setting all the legal apparatus in place in order that he could bring Anne down as Queen. And then, of course he uh, very cynically leaps on those conversations with Norris and Smeaton as the perfect means to justify bringing Anne down. He must have known there was no substance to the allegations uh, against Anne. And as we say, if he's the one that does the questioning of Mark Smeaton at his own residence. So does he torture Smeaton? Quite possibly. And then he's got a confession, which is enough to 
get things moving. He then hoovers up all the rumours and gossip swirling around about Anne again, probably knowing that individually none of it really adds up. But the cumulative effect is to create this sort of overwhelming sense of scandal and guilt, so imbuing something of a moral panic. And if he doesn't pull this off, he's he's he is so dead, isn't he? Absolutely, yeah. Wow. But the benefit, I guess, the fact that, weirdly, like you said, the fact there's so many of them makes you think, well, obviously it's nonsense. But equally, the fact there's so many of them means that there's too much smoke for there not Mm. to be a fire. It just overwhelms people. There's so much of it. Yeah, there's so much fake smoke here that there's probably a fire somewhere. Yeah, we can't see it, but there's definitely a fire. Yeah. Uh, He deliberately declines to interview Anne during the investigations. Oh, this is where he does his distancing thing? Mm. No, Cromwell deliber- uh, doesn't interview Oh, Anne. right. And so Anne notes to Kingston that I much marvel that the King's Council comes not to me. Which you might think, your uh, your main uh, suspect, you might mm. ask them one or two questions. Mm. Um, but if your intention is to condemn someone, condemn someone who is intelligent, articulate and obviously innocent, mm. what possible benefit is there to letting them dispute the charges? Hmm. Well, I mean, other than finding the truth. But that's not what's <laughs> interesting here. <laughs> oh, Ali. <laughs> sweet, sweet Ali. <laughs> no? Not no. so much. Oh, okay. Um, of course, it wasn't just Anne who was put on trial, and the male victims are also uh, perhaps tactical choices on Cromwell's part. Obviously, it's not enough just to remove Anne on her own because we've got this powerful Berlin faction that could fight back and could defend her. Mm. But by taking out Norris and indeed taking out George Berlin, you've got another two very senior figures. Uh, Francis Weston is actually a bit more identified with those opposed to the Berlins, but in a way that's also good for Cromwell because it allows him to present the whole affair as being politically neutral. Yeah. William Brereton's inclusion is something of a mystery, and the most likely explanation seems to be that he was someone of ill repute with whom Cromwell had clashed over royal appointments on the Welsh border. So basically Cromwell just takes an opportunity to get rid of someone he didn't like. (laughs) Fair enough. Other people who had close associations to Anne would also, of course, have been fearful that they would find themselves being arrested. But some of these, like uh, most notably the poet Thomas Wyatt, who was suspected of pursuing Anne at the same time as Henry VIII, uh, they were close to Cromwell. So Cromwell um, arrests but never charges them, i.e. he basically just keeps them out of trouble until everything blows over. Hmm. So it's not like he puts on trial everybody who's got a strong association with Anne. You could argue that Wyatt has got one of the strongest, but because Cromwell likes him, he doesn't face the music. Was this the one person that was just arrested to sort of keep them away? Yes. Make sure they don't get themselves into trouble and say anything silly. Which everyone was doing at this point. Now, because Cromwell had already got all the legal apparatus in place before he actually had any evidence... Because mm. remember, because the conversations with Norris and Smeaton, which kickstart all of this, are after Cromwell set everything up to try Anne. Whoa, hang on. What's that? So Cromwell They're... has already got the legal process in place for some kind of trial against Anne before he's actually got any evidence to try her with. So those fateful conversations which ultimately condemn her happen after Cromwell has got the Judicial Commission and the new Parliament set up. which does rather suggest that he was intending to find something and bring her down rather than she was definitely guilty and he was just doing his job. Yeah, that's 
That's a shocker. Mm. What that whole you you imagine the king dead chat and all that. Yeah, that happens after the judicial commission has been okay. issued. Well, then I go back to my point about at two times I would be so mindful about everything I said. If if there's something in the air like that, I'd, <laughs> I'd, I'd, I'd take ill. What's this new judicial commission about? Oh, just to try people for treason. Which people? Don't know yet. I'm going to bed. Uh, but yeah, as Eric Ives observed, uh, they were arrested and the facts so-called then came to light. It's the wrong way around, isn't it? It is the wrong way round. We would consider in our legal system that would be the wrong way round. Uh, but Cromwell would consider it efficient. Well, indeed efficient, because speed is crucial, not just because obviously it prevents his opponents from having time to respond and to hit back, but also it doesn't give Henry time to change his mind. Mm. So he saw how the Norris conversation had pushed him to the edge, but he was still kind of going on with everything. He wasn't yet saying, right, that's it, marriage done off to the tower with you oh because it's after he'd left that tournament so it's only once the Smeaton confession is sent to Henry that yeah. he then is like right what's going on you better have a good explanation you don't write off to the tower of everybody so there's a sense that Cromwell has to give Henry a push an extra push even with the Smeaton thing in order for him to be like right okay that's it they're all guilty everybody's head off and he doesn't want to leave it too long in case Henry changes his mind Mm. So that's why it's all so quick from him. Yeah. Exactly. Thomas Crammer's the only one to come close, really, to speaking up for Anne, as we read out that letter earlier. And maybe he might have made a stronger case, but Cromwell gets to him first. So he summoned, uh, Cromwell summoned Crammer to Lambeth Palace on the day of Anne's arrest and explicitly told him not to seek an audience with Henry. Cromwell summoned the Archbishop of Canterbury? Yes. That's amazing isn't it well said i mean cromwell is the senior person in henry's government even though he doesn't have a title he is also a close ally of cranmer and it's after uh, this meeting that cranmer eventually writes his rather awkward letter to henry no doubt having been told by cromwell in no uncertain terms that the question of anne's guilt should not be challenged mm. and ultimately of course it wasn't challenged the trials were organized in such a way as to ensure that the uh, quote correct verdict was achieved Anne and George had to be tried separately from the others because they were superior in rank. But this meant that the other men, whose convictions were easier to secure, were put on trial first uh, in front of a notably hostile jury. And that meant that once they'd been found guilty, it didn't matter how good a defence Anne put mm. up. Mm. And she did put a good defence because by logic, she has to be guilty because the men have been found guilty of adultery with her. So how could she be innocent? Mm. Oh. I mean, aside from the fact she might be innocent. Obviously, guilty is the, the verdict, and uh, Anne is executed on the 19th of May. And as I say, we recall the outburst Henry made against Cromwell and Cran uh, Cromwell and Shapwee was the 18th of April. So it's one month and one day after Henry's outburst that wow. Anne is dead. And then five days later, after Anne's execution, Cromwell has a meeting with Shapwee and explicitly tells Shapwee that he had set himself to think up and plot out the whole business. It was he who, in consequence of the disappointment and anger he had felt on hearing the king's answer to me on the third day of Easter, had planned and brought about the whole affair. So you say it was that telling off? That was mm. the moment I knew I had to kill the queen. All adds up, doesn't it? It does, and seems to be a pretty definitive answer. A confession, as it were. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> Hoist by his own petard. However, you've sort of been hinting at this. It, can it really be as simple as that? Because we had that point Peter Ackroyd made about just how risky it is 
to make these charges against the Queen, against Norris, against George Boleyn, against all these different people. It's incredibly risky to do, particularly if, as we're suggesting is the case, that the evidence is fabricated. Mm. So surely for Cromwell to even think about doing this, he must have had, at the very least, the tacit support of the king to pursue this campaign, or indeed, which we will consider after the break, perhaps, rather than Cromwell, Ansfor was predominantly at the instigation of Henry VIII. Relationship Breakdown Maybe there were suspicions about Anne's genuine guilt. Maybe Cromwell was keen to get rid of her. Ultimately, however... This is Henry's decision and reflects on the fact that he had fallen out of love with Anne and wanted to move on. Yep. After going to such great lengths to marry Anne and making such great sacrifices, by 1536, Henry seems to have decided things hadn't gone quite as well as he might have hoped. Country's deeply divided. He lost old friends, most notably executing Thomas More the previous year. <laughs> yeah, which you might lost say was friends. His fault. <laughs> yeah. um, and England remains isolated in Europe, despite Anne's good relations uh, with the French. And what's more, robbed of the unifying cause of securing their marriage, Henry and Anne seem to have been increasingly at odds. Uh, they spent an unusually long time trying to marry, in which Anne has often been the driving force, and she is also, of course, the sole focus of Henry's affection. So then maybe once they're married, they both probably have slightly unrealistic expectations of what the marriage is going to look mm. like. Henry now expects everything to go back to normal, and he'll have a traditional subservient wife. Yeah. Whereas Anne expects to see the legitimacy of the crown increase her standing even further and for their relationship otherwise to continue as it has been, i.e. her driving him. Now, of course, it's not unusual for kings to be unfaithful, but Anne seems to have been unable uh, to look the other way, resulting in uh, various furious arguments with Henry. On one occasion, he told her that she must shut her eyes and endure as those who were better than herself had done. Oh, lovely. Uh, it's really... He's a, he comes across as very, um, you know... Reasonable chap, doesn't he? I can't see why I'm the bad guy here. <laughs> and it's worth it um, for Anne remembering how unusual the fact of theirs being such a personal relationship was, because English kings almost exclusively married for political or diplomatic reasons, usually without having any form of relationship prior to the marriage itself. Um, and indeed, Anne is really only the second post-conquest queen after Elizabeth Woodville, for whom this really is the case. Mm. And the problem with her queenship being based on the personal relationship, is that other queens could always trade on their status, the importance of the marriage in terms of foreign policy or domestic alliances. Not Anne. Until she can produce a son, her position's always going to be in question. And not just because Catherine of Aragon, the first wife, is still alive until uh, the start of 1536, but because if Anne could win Henry's heart and supplant the previous yeah. queen, what's to say that someone else couldn't do exactly the same thing to her? This is where you were saying in our previous episode that she's just desperate. Like, um, I'm always saying how people should just go retire from this game. <laughs> and she effectively can if she has a boy. Yeah. Then, then she can just disappear. And that's, that's all she can bring because mm. she doesn't have the title or alliances that she brings with it. Yeah. And thus, that's why when she has the miscarriage in January 1536, it's often seen as the pivotal moment where her relationship with Henry, and obviously thus her prospects of Queen, are finished. The child is old enough to be identified as a boy. Mm. Um, so Shapri writes at the time that she had miscarried of her saviour. Yeah. And what month was that in 1536? Well, it's, it's January, and it's on the very day of Catherine of Aragon's funeral. Oh, I can totally see how that would play. Mm. 
very, very symbolic uh, mm. as the day. But it's also, there's this new reality that now that Catherine Aragon has died, it's actually also much easier for Henry to get rid of Anne and to start a third marriage. Because previously, if he leaves Anne, everyone's going to say, well, that shows you were wrong and that you should still have been married to Catherine. So if he takes a third wife, he's still going to have that same problem of everybody saying, but your true wife is Catherine of Aragon. Now that Catherine of Aragon is dead, Henry thinks, well, I can make a clean start now because nobody really likes Anne anyway. Catherine's dead, so wife number three, that's proper clean slate. (laughs) This time. This one. (laughs) This one. This is the one. This is the real quiz. (laughs) Uh, And indeed, he does have a new mistress in the form of Jane Seymour. Now, obviously, that's a name that means something to us because we know she's going to be wife number three. There's no evidence that he'd been pursuing her as a potential wife before the miscarriage. And obviously, in fact, it would have been madness to do so, given that he might be about to get a son and heir Mm. from Anne. But after the miscarriage, we see things really step up a notch. Henry starts sending her expensive gifts, which, like Anne had done a decade earlier, Jane very delicately uh, refuses, which obviously entices Henry even more. Decade? Yes. Yeah, we're a decade on from the start of Henry and Anne's relationship. Wow. Uh, Cromwell seems to have made an alliance with Edward Seymour, Jane's brother, who wins favour from Henry. And Henry, indeed, will use Cromwell's apartments at Whitehall to visit Jane in secret. Um, And Jane is probably being coached uh, into trying to turn Henry against Anne. Trying to subtly sow those seeds, use her influence. Uh, The day before the Judicial Commission uh, was commissioned... Uh, so the thing that Cromwell sets up to ultimately hear all of this, uh, the mm. trial against Anne. The day before that is established, Henry made the surprising choice to fill a vacancy in the Order of the Garter, not with George Boleyn, uh, that Anna put forward, but instead a chap called Nicholas Carew, who is both Jane Seymour's mentor and an avowed enemy of Anne Boleyn. Uh, I mean, that that doesn't sound right. It doesn't sound right. That sounds a very pointed choice, and it, again, does seem to suggest Henry is looking to a future without Anne. Uh, Now, many have seen Henry's reaction to uh, the accusations against Anne when they do come as being a bit suspicious. Um, As one historian put it, Henry was very capable of allowing deep affection to turn into bitter hatred and allow himself to believe any old nonsense to reinforce his new point of view. This is a bit like um, when I read The Psychopath Test. And um, self-diagnose myself as an absolute bang-on psycho. (laughs) I'm worried I'm Henry VIII now. (laughs) I'm very guilty of some of these traits. Uh, Henry was reported to be seen going about banqueting with ladies, sometimes remaining after midnight and returning by river. (laughs) Um, A chap we observed, already it sounds ill in the ears of the people that the king, having received such ignominy, has shown himself more glad than ever since the arrest of the whore. You never saw a prince or husband show or wear his horns, i.e. his cuckold's horns, more patiently and lightly than this one does. I leave you to guess the cause of it. Given the the level of the accusations that, you know, Anna's betrayed him with five different men, Mm. he seems rather chipper. Yeah, he's very he publicly caught publicly courting Jane Seymour. He's having jolly times with other ladies at court. He's having a great time, which isn't your normal reaction unless this is exactly what you want to be happening. Yeah, yeah. Um, indeed, he was reportedly impatient at having to wait an entire two weeks from Anne's being arrested to her being executed, um, and he'd already ordered the French swordsman 
to come to England to execute her before she had her trial. No. Mm. Maybe there's an offer on. He goes deep into planning how to execute his wife before she's been found guilty of any crime. That is deeply shocking. Hmm. You could still argue the argument isn't wholly satisfying. So Susanna Lipscomb pointed out there's something of a dissonance in Henry having gone to such great lengths to marry Anne and then destroying her on something of a whim. The difficulty in securing the marriage should have made him more committed to her rather than less. And indeed, there's evidence that this was the case. Theirs is a very passionate affair. And while they did have a lot of arguments in their marriage, they're also uh, happy times as well. So 1535, after going on a summer progress together, they're observed as being very merry in each other's company. And Chapley recorded that the king loves his mistress now more than ever he did. Um, I don't think it does, because once you got rid of Catherine, mm. then he's got a free hand. Well, he's got a free hand, but the point is, he's had to go to such a, an effort yeah. to marry Anne that it doesn't yeah. make sense for him to give her up on just a whim because it's so much effort. Like, if you... <laughs> I mean, again, without wanting to <laughs> tarnish you further, but, you know, like, if you went to a huge effort to, I don't know, get a new boat, buy a boat, a nice new yeah. boat or something, you yeah. would be... You'd spend six months convincing Becca about it. You'd be doing fundraising things. You'd be talking to everybody about it all the time. And then you finally get the boat. You take it out. Uh, I was going to say, take it out for a drive. <laughs> yeah. You take it out on the water a couple of times. And then you go, ah, oh, I, I, I don't know. It's a bit cold. I can't be bothered with this. And well, then just, Graham. And, and then just junk it. I, I, hate to, I hate to surprise you, but that is exactly what has happened. <laughs> Seriously. I, you know, I spent eight years building that boat. Yeah. Sailed it four times. But I imagine because because that upheaval and how difficult it was has left him all powerful. The other queen's dead. Scott and his, I, I just think whim is is I I think that's totally fine. Look, I'm hearing what you're saying, Graham, about this psychological dissonance and how this makes absolutely no psychological sense to anyone of sane and rational mind. But to me, it sounds absolutely, absolutely plausible. Absolutely plausible, exactly. I can and entirely see where he's coming from. Which makes me think I'm Henry VIII. I can <laughs> totally see his point of view. And uh, there's a great power in doing something that is irrational, isn't it? Keeping people on their toes. <laughs> Well, and uh, Susanna Lipscomb, of course, wrote the uh, the book 1536, the year that changed Henry VIII. So, of course, you know, there has to be an explanation for how this um, very jolly and happy and handsome young chap turned into such a monster in his late 30s. <laughs> oh, my gosh. He had a... What, you say thankfully, he had a... Thank you, I haven't had any serious traumatic injuries that could... <laughs> yeah, thankfully, I haven't had any... Uh, yeah. Well, exactly, massive head traumas. Yeah. Yeah, none of those... Oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. Well, I never thought I'd find sympathy for Henry. <laughs> <laughs> there is still plenty of evidence that Henry is still committed to Anne. Although he might have been saying things that implied he was having doubts about the marriage, the shifting sands of Henry's favour and disfavour is something of a multiverse of madness that could be moved <laughs> in all sorts of contradictory directions until it's set on one firm course. And in Anne's case, there's still plenty of evidence to suggest that she could still have retained his affection. And almost to the end, her fate doesn't seem to be set in stone. There's no evidence Henry's really doing anything to secure her removal uh, for most of the year, as shown by the fact that Shapley is forced to acknowledge her 
uh, for the first time, just a month before she is executed. So again, Susanna Lipscomb concluded, it would have been extraordinarily capricious of Henry to go to these great lengths to have Anne recognised as his wife if he actually intended to rid himself of her shortly thereafter. This does not preclude the possibility that Anne and Henry were not on the best of terms, but it does make it unlikely that Henry was preparing to abandon the marriage. I, th- I think capricious is exactly a word I'd use to describe him. <laughs> what do you mean? And I would put the word extraordinarily in front of it and say yes. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly what it is because he's also incredibly proud. Mm. He wouldn't, um, he wouldn't talk to Chapoy until he'd uh, recognised. I mean, that's sort of how they. Right crazy. now the that film. you've admitted that you were wrong and I was right, now I can kill her because there's no yeah. further benefit of me yeah. parading her. Yeah, it's a power thing. Well, you used the word pride, and perhaps perhaps that's the key word for seeing a flaw in Henry orchestrating all of this, because he suffers an intense personal humiliation in all of this. His wife is found guilty of adultery with five different men. Um, at George Boleyn's trial, he reads out to the whole court... Um, against instruction, the accusation that Henry was not skilful in copulating with a woman and had neither vigour nor potency. Who read that out? George Boleyn. What an idiot. Why did he do that? Well, yes, one might suspect that it suggests that if he did have any hope of uh, being acquitted, that was the moment that he <laughs> lost a What wife. an idiot. I mean, probably he thought, you know, this is obviously a set-up job. What's the point? Enjoy yeah. myself. Well, but nevertheless, you know, Henry thus is publicly this is and remember this is like everyone who's anyone is in this court hearing mm. this accusation from somebody that knows that Henry is rubbish in bed and impotent and his wife has slept with five other men. I I don't think that changes Henry though. It'll be oh, like I don't know. I, you don't think Henry might be a bit positive. Oh, it'd about. be cheesed off. Yeah. <laughs> Well, it's all incredibly emasculating. It lays him open mm. to ridicule, not just as a man who's unable to control his wife, but also as a monarch who's unable to control his queen, unable to control his court, perhaps even unable to control his kingdom. You know, it kind of it could really undermine your sense of Henry as a strong and powerful monarch, yeah, as well as obviously a strong and powerful man. Exactly. Um, Susanna Lipscomb noted his enormous capacity for hyperbolic self-pity. Um, mm-hmm. So on the day that Anne is arrested, he summons his illegitimate son, Henry Fitzroy, to him and tells him that Fitzroy and Mary were greatly bound to God for having escaped the hands of that accursed whore who had determined to poison them. Yeah, yeah. He, so like he he's loves weeping, it. He's weeping to his son, oh, this is woe is me. He's also reported to have composed an autobiographical tragedy that he carried around with him in a small book <laughs> so that he could show people. It's classic psychopath stuff, isn't it? <laughs> I mean, I, I'm not, I want you to be absolutely sure that I'm not a registered clinician of any kind, mm. let alone a um, therapist. What do I do? I do my um, mate Andrew's one, psychiatrist. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'd write him out a prescription for lithium or whatever he needs, this right here and now. <laughs> so you're saying that he's a psychopath. Alternatively, his pursuit, his very public pursuit of Jane, his late night escapades with the ladies... All of that, which looked a bit suspicious, is probably just bravado. He's probably just trying to put a brave face on it and be like, oh, I'm still a man. I'm still a lad. Hey, look at me. Don't listen. Yeah. And it's in the aftermath of all of this that we get the famous Holbein portrait where he stands standing tall, hands on hips, legs apart, large cod beasts uh, staring, staring out at us, and also his eyes directly looking at you in the camera. It's the definitive image of Henry 
um, but also a very deliberate and indeed obviously successful piece of propaganda that's trying to reassert his masculinity and his power. Because really the whole thing with Anne Boleyn, all these accusations, all the stuff that comes out, is actually quite emasculating for Henry. And it's after this we see him really reasserting his mm. alpha male status, which perhaps suggests he might not, if he did want to bring Anne down, he maybe wouldn't have done it by making himself as a impotent cuckold. Well, everyone everyone has a plan <laughs> before they get punched in the face. Uh, so I think that's why it, it just that was a unfortunate unfortunate moment that, that spiraled out of his control. <laughs> Do you think he does plan all this he just didn't really think it through? Yeah. Again, much sympathy. <laughs> well, <laughs> I wasn't expecting this to be the conclusion we get from the podcast. We're not quite sure about Anne, but we've learnt an awful lot about Ali. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, if nothing else, we know no, I need help. Uh, well, we do have, however, one more uh, possibility to discuss. Appeared guilty. So our final possible explanation for Anne's dramatic fall is that it was almost something of an accident. She appeared guilty, but was actually innocent. So with all the different motivations and timings and stuff that we mentioned before, everything comes together at just the right moment, or perhaps obviously in Anne's case, just the wrong moment, mm -hmm. for her to look guilty of adultery, for Henry to believe it, and Cromwell to exploit it. So as I said, we've, we've seen that there's plenty of evidence that Cromwell is conspiring against Anne, but that doesn't mean that he was ever intending to charge her with adultery. And as we said, that was such an extreme thing to do, and risky thing to do, that was he actually, was that always his intent? The Judicial Commission set up to consider various potential offences and legal issues, not necessarily because Cromwell is intending to throw everything at Anne, but perhaps actually because he wasn't quite sure what to do. So the Bishop of London was consulted on the legal question of how one might legally dispense of a royal wife. Um, understandably, he was reluctant to give that advice without better knowing the king's mind. Yeah, this is the only person, I mean, I'd like to be that, that's what I'd do. Yes. And then at that point, I'd go on holiday. Before I commit treason, I'd just like to check what the king thinks mm. yeah. and then say that. Yeah, I mean, that, that's what I'd all... Uh, that, it, that should be the answer to everything. <laughs> and uh, openly so. Yes. <laughs> Perhaps the most likely strategy for Cromwell would have been to argue that Anne's marriage to Henry was invalid because she'd previously been betrothed to Henry Percy, uh, the then heir and now current heir to the Earl of Northumberland. And that's before she married Henry, so that would have invalidated her marriage to Henry. Legally, she would have been considered marriage, uh, mm. married to Percy. So in 1536 Cromwell returns to Percy a house that he'd recently and very expensively refurbished in Hackney. Cromwell returns to Percy? So Percy had owned this house for a long time until 1535. Cromwell buys it, spends loads of money making it look nice but then in 1536 he gives it back to Percy for free. Apropos of nothing. Why? Well, perhaps he was hoping that Henry Percy might do him a little bit of favour and say, oh, yes, I've just remembered I was betrothed to Anne Boleyn 15 years uh, ago. So she, I guess she isn't really legally the Queen anymore. Right. Uh, but then they didn't need to use that line. Well, perhaps they were intended to do it. Percy does actually refuse, ultimately. He does insist. No, 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 definitely didn't. Clever. And I'll have the house. Yeah, enough, but I will have the house. Another alternative is Henry had previously had an affair with Anne's sister, Mary Boleyn, before mm. he married her. So again, the same argument that he used against Catherine of Aragon for having been married to his brother Arthur, he can say, well, that technically means we're related in the first degree, therefore we can't be married. Lots yeah. of possibilities 
for Cromwell, basically, but nothing actually concrete. So as David Starkey puts it, there is, in short, the powerful impression that Anne's opponents were flailing around. They had her under defensive, but they had not come up with an open and shut case against her. She might easily escape and turn the tables. Yeah. But still, the, the point there is, yes, Cromwell is trying to remove her as queen, but he, there's probably he's looking at means to invalidate the marriage. He's looking for a legal way to remove Anna's queen. Leaving her alive? Well, yeah, because that's, that's, that would be the legal route. There's nothing really there for him in terms of the adultery, because remember that that all stems from the conversations that come after he set all this stuff in place. So something I find really fascinating about this is what if Anne had been unwell that weekend and just had to take to bed and didn't speak to Norris and didn't speak to Smeaton? Would she still have ended up in the Tower for something else? Might she even have recovered her position and continued as queen? Was it just that this was the moment when Cromwell was ready to act, but he didn't have a spark? Henry was maybe in doubts, but equally that could have been recovered. Did it just happen at the worst possible moment? If she'd not been there that weekend and spoken to them, would she I still think, have died? Yeah. He is an opportunist in the... In the, um, in the and I mean that as a compliment, Cromwell... Hmm. I think you know. I think he would have found something else, but but that's the point, though. It, it's yeah. opportunism because Cromwell doesn't invent these conversations with Norris with Smeaton, and then obviously Anne voluntarily offers up the Western conversation as well. So he's striking. He, he's opportunistically striking against a vulnerable rival, but it's not really a carefully orchestrated plot here. Mm. He set up the apparatus that he can act against her. In that sense, it's orchestrated. But all this stuff for the adultery that really all comes from Anne. He didn't. Yeah, he can't believe his luck. Exactly. Anne has presented something for Cromwell to use that he would not otherwise really have been able to do because it would been so risky to just make that up with no evidence. He, But I can't believe he'd consider an option which would leave her alive and able to carry on trying to kill him. Well, but if she is legally removed as his wife, you know, I mean, that's what happens with Catherine Aragon, except this time we don't have to worry about Spain invading us. Quite the opposite. yeah. yeah, yeah. They'd like that, wouldn't they? Mm. So it's it's not that unlikely that he would have been pursuing just your standard divorcee mm. job. So then we have to ask, I guess, do Cromwell and Henry really believe Anne is guilty? Now, as I said, Henry's reactions, like we said, his argument with Anne, his argument with Norris, does suggest that he did, or at least that he was able to make himself believe that he did believe mm. it was true. And it, Henry is quite good at believing, being able to believe things that are convenient to believe. Mm. Yeah, We saw that with Catherine Aragon. It's also notable that there are accounts in Europe that suggest that Smeaton himself might have started the rumours of his relationship with Anne. Um, and some historians have seen his confession evidence not necessarily of Cromwell torturing him, but perhaps of Smeaton as sort of something of a celebrity stalker. So he confesses yeah. because he wants to have slept with Anne. He wants to be significant to her. And that by confessing, he does sort of make himself part of her yeah story but yes yeah, so, and obviously there's various rumors and stuff that's picked up along the way of court as well but it's it's sort of it's all building by itself cromwell's not invented this henry's not invented this so mm. actually Anne perhaps does present as guilty from their perspective yeah now the fact that obviously there's still the issue that cromwell puts all these false dates in mm. but in a way that doesn't really matter because obviously cromwell doesn't have any interest in undertaking a detailed investigation that could drag on for months and might give his opponents time to act, or indeed might find it not to be true. 
Anne's court has got a colourful reputation. All of these revelations come along. Smeaton confesses, perhaps not under torture, perhaps just, you know, he does it for his own silly reasons. Mm. Anne appears guilty. Cromwell doesn't really want to ask any more than that. That's yeah, more yeah, yeah. than enough for him to do something with. Yeah, exactly. Henry perhaps, you know, maybe does think she's guilty as well. He seems horrified by it all. It's not that anyone made it up. It just sort of presented itself and maybe she just looked guilty and that was... That's enough. Hmm. I Yeah, I think that's it. What? So, taking that last bit into account, you know I said hmm. it was um, all Henry and Cromwell. Hmm. Stand by that. Then they had all this other stuff, which meant there was just a more permanent outcome available. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and by that point, Henry had already turned his back. Hmm. Job done. Hmm. Yes, as I say, our options were she was guilty, Cromwell does it all, Henry does it all, or she just appears guilty. So Fairbanks and Lay noted that these theories are not all mutually exclusive, yeah. and much of the evidence can be read in different ways. So, yeah, I think that's there's definitely something there that it, it may well be that Cromwell was only acting because he knew that Henry wanted him to act. And he had to because he, he was in um, danger. And it suited him because he was in danger himself. But that didn't mean that Cromwell was making stuff up about the adultery. It didn't mean that she didn't then present as guilty. It didn't mean that they were planning to charge her with that. That just sort mm. of happens. And also, the fact that Henry maybe gave Cromwell those orders doesn't necessarily mean that he would ultimately have finished on that point of view and might have been able to recover. She might have been able to win Henry back round again. We do see um, later in Henry's reign that he is perfectly capable of effectively giving completely contradictory orders to two different sets of people and then deciding later who's going to be contemned and who isn't. Mm. So it's entirely possible that he could have set Cromwell up to do all of this and then decided, actually, I'm going to back Anne and then being cross with Hen- uh, cross with Cromwell. That is so duplicitous and mm. cunning <laughs> that he, he whatever he would have done, he has a get-out like that because he's king. He can just... Change his mind. He could just change his mind. <laughs> Which but, is always in his back pocket. Mm, but once we have the accusations of adultery against Anne, and if Henry believes them to be true, or again, I guess like Cromwell, if he it's decides that he wants to believe them to be true, yeah, there's yeah. really no coming back from that for Anne. No. So, in in a funny way, the question of her guilt almost doesn't really matter. Yeah, it, it, exactly. Exactly. It's something was set in motion... Like, we need to sort this out. We need to get to the bottom of this and mm. business. And then all these revelations appear that just tidy it all up. The circumstances were ripe that if this sort of thing came up, yeah. it was going to be exploited to the full. <laughs> yeah, imagine. He probably went to, Brock Cromwell probably went to bed saying, oh, imagine if, uh, uh, imagine if we could get that that annoying, horrible George Berlin guy to say that, uh, he had sex with his sister. <laughs> Wouldn't that be ideal? And then the next day, yeah. he just... Yeah, I, think, I feel like that's what happened. And again, time is say, it's a very vulnerable point for Anne, but, you know, if the, if these conversations had happened a few months earlier when she was pregnant, mm. probably she would have been okay. They'd have had an argument, but... You know, she would have she, won him round, yeah. She would have won him round. She'd potentially got his son and heir in her tummy, so yeah. he's not going to act against her then. It was just absolutely the wrong moment for it to happen. Mm. 
Correspondence Corner. Uh, so that is our verdict on the fall of Anne Boleyn. Let us know what you think. We'll do a write a reply episode for the six wives of Henry VIII. But equally, we always enjoy getting your messages, however many years oh, later yes. you may have listened. So do send them in. Uh, as you said at the start, find us on Twitter, Instagram at Rex Factor Pod, uh, Rex Factor Podcast Facebook page, and you can email Rex Factor Podcast at hotmail.com. And uh, remember to send in your hashtag consult cards for an episode image for Anne or indeed uh, any of the other consults we've done in this series. But if you do a consult card, for one of the six wives of Henry VIII, you will be in with a chance of winning a Rex Factor Henry VIII figurine. Uh, if you'd like to support the podcast, you can leave a review and subscribe on whatever podcast provider you use. Donate monthly to join the Privy Council and get access to over 150 bonus episodes at patreon.com forward slash Rex Factor. Do you know the best thing about being a patron, though? You get to chat with us on Discord, which <laughs> I was very suspicious about, as frequent listeners will know. But I'm all over it now. It's brilliant. Mm. Uh, and we have some new Privy Councillors to welcome to the fold. Harriet Cook, Toby Morris, Voistine Matthiasen, Cammy, Monique Lammers, Odd Knit Adventures, Alexander Thompson, Luke Seaford, Carrie Seymour, Alexandra Keefe, Kira O'Sullivan, Kirsty Petroborg, Ariane Dunn, Daniel Bazaar, Charlotte Kearson, Jill Person, K.A.E. Smith, Louisa Boyce, Gunnar Minderbinder Tassenburg Husenbar. Well done. Quinn Locke. Ingrid Tourson. Carol Peck. Ella Leith. Simon Harris. And Amy Garvin. Hello. <laughs> <laughs> I hope to see you all on the Discord server very soon for lots of fun nonsense. We're a very, very happy clan, I think, on there. It's really nice. It's a really nice community. Because that is it, obviously, for Anne Boleyn. Um, so after three episodes of Anne Boleyn, two episodes of Catherine Aragon, we are finally on to uh, Jane Seymour, wife number three, and that will be just in one episode. So hopefully we're going to be able to move a little bit of a better pace now that we've got through the big two of Catherine and Anne. Yeah, normal amount of drama for that one. Uh, and so we will see you next time for Jane Seymour. Cheery bye. <laughs> <laughs>